We've lived in a low inflation world for the past 40 years, but with inflation now raging, how will that change the investing climate going forward? It's going to be like bizarro world because it's going to be the opposite of everything we've experienced, most of us, throughout our entire working lives and investment careers. You know, um, inflation is such a powerful force uh, and such a, a, a damaging force, given the amount of debt that's been building up in the system, that it, that it really will change everything. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Here in December, investors are starting to look ahead to next year, wondering what's most likely to happen in 2022. Raging inflation, the sudden rise of volatility in the financial markets, and the current media headlines screaming about the newest COVID virus variant suggest the year may have a rocky start, which could be further impacted by the expected market reduction in both monetary and fiscal stimulus in the U.S. So, to understand where the puck is likely headed in 2022, we're bringing in the big guns and welcoming Grant Williams, portfolio advisor, commentator, and co-founder of Real Vision onto the program. Grant is hands down one of the absolute best macro analysts in the business. Grant, thanks so much for joining us today, all the way from the UK. Hey, mate. Good to see you. As you can see from my clothing, I have swapped Caribbean sunshine for, uh, for London in December, much to my uh, own amazement. But here I am. Yeah, you you may be the only person who's chosen to do that, I imagine. Yeah, listen, listen the flight going that way was a lot emptier than it will be going back the other way, I can promise you. <laughs> All right, well, look, uh, let's let's dive right into things here, Grant. Um, I've got so many questions here for you, but let's start with the one that I like to ask all of my guests right at the outset, which, uh, given the way the world looks right now, what is your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? That's uh, that's uh, well. Listen, we got we got what an hour. This, that, that, that this should do us nicely. Look, it's um, <laughs> but as always, Adam, it, it's it's confused, it's conflicted, it's uh, it's it's bipolar. Frankly, I mean that that what what we're seeing in stock markets, which is what people used to use as a barometer for the economy, um, is completely different to what we're seeing in the underlying uh, economy itself. And so it's it's become very very difficult to kind of separate the two out. And you have to you have to hold these two conflicting views in your mind at the same time. I, I, I've said this before, but I always go back to this quote from Billy Connolly saying that um, you know intelligence is being able to listen to the William Tell Overture and not think about the Lone Ranger. And um, you know I, when I look at what 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 equity markets are doing and what the underlying economies are doing, it's it's kind of that you've got to be able to look at stock markets and not get sucked into the idea that. The economy is booming because it just isn't, um, and so I, I think we're in this this really weird and frankly very dangerous place where, uh, and I'm sure we'll get onto this when we talk about um, is this inflation versus deflation tug of war um, because the, you know that to me right now is probably the thing that most people need to try and understand, need to have a read on, need to have a plan for both ways. Because there's no real guarantee as to how this plays out. I've got some thoughts, and I'm sure we'll get onto those. But um, you know, after after four years, uh, sorry, four decades of of really one way traffic in in terms of uh, deflationary tailwind, um, 
we may well be at a point where we get a burst of activity in the other direction. And it's, that's not to say we're going to get four decades of it, but you don't need four decades of it. You know, four years of it is going to be plenty to up, upend a lot of the work that's been done over the last 40 years or so. So I think that to me, when you talk about the state of the global economy and the state of the financial markets, I think the state of financial markets is they're at all-time highs in most cases. They're at extremely overvalued levels in most cases. They're extremely fragile. The leadership in nearly all of them is getting thinner and thinner, which are just classic signs of a, of a, of a market top. And the, the economy has been kept alive um, by stimulus payments. So uh, it's a very dangerous place to be. And, and look, we, there's been plenty of people talking about the potential for trouble in markets for years now. And, and there will be people, quite rightly, who will be listening to this going, ah, you know, it's, it's the same old song, which is absolutely fine. Um, but what people tend to ask is, you know, what, what could be the problems we might face? And that really is the question that every investor needs to ask at every point in the cycle. And it's called risk management. You know, what, what are the potential dangers to, to my positioning? And um, the potential dangers for the longest time now have been a return to a connection between financial markets and the economy. They've been uh, a withdrawal or a reduction in the amount of stimulus. And they've been really financial gravity. And so, you know, when those have been the problems for a number of years, it's okay to keep warning that they're the problems because nothing's changed. It just it just so happens that where we are right now, the A, the degree to which those problems, should they materialize, can upset your portfolio, have multiplied dramatically. And B, the signs are getting louder and louder that some kind of uh, reversal of fortune is near. And that I think everybody needs to have a plan for. All right, great summarization of a complicated topic. Um, and yes, you sort of put your finger on where I wanna head next in here, which really is um, getting your full thoughts on the inflation versus deflation debate. Um, my, my question was actually going to be, is the debate over? Um, in the sense that we have seen a return of inflation after uh, you know, years and years of debate as to whether it was actually going to show up or not. And um, Grant, you and I have had some interesting discussions over the past couple of years. I remember sitting down with you in New Orleans, I think it was, at the end of 2019, uh, asking your latest thoughts on, on that debate. And you had said you, know, you were really beginning to get worried that inflation was going to start winning out. Uh, and of course, that was before the pandemic hit, it hit a couple months later. Uh, and of course, everybody knows what's, what's happened since then. Um, so if I, can, if, if I can repeat back what you said, it sounds like you're saying um, you actually expect there now to be um, a fair amount of inflation going forward, at least in the short term. Um, and one of my questions to you is, what does an inflationary world look like? Because we haven't lived in one for, as you said, the past 40 years or so, how, how might the rules of the game change? Um, and, uh, you know, of course, right now we're talking at a, at a point where I think the last print that I saw for the CPI was something like 6.2. I don't know if that's the most recent number or not, but that's, that's pretty healthy inflation at this point. Um, and we don't know if it's continuing to go higher, it's going to continue to go higher from here or not. So, um, uh, so I guess first question is, um, do you see the next couple of years being dominated by inflation versus deflation? Um, and if so, um, A, is that the trigger that, that might cause this reconnecting of the markets uh, and the underlying economy? 
uh, and B, uh, whether it does or it doesn't, what what different behaviors will we need to adopt in this new inflationary future versus the ones that we've had for the past couple of decades? Well, look, I think uh, it's um, it, it's hard to think of parallels, but if if anybody watching this is either a Superman fan or a Seinfeld fan, that should that should capture a lot of people. It's going to be like Bizarro World because it's going to be the opposite of everything we've experienced, most of us, throughout our entire working lives and investment careers. You know, um, inflation is such a powerful force uh, and such a, a, a damaging force, given the amount of debt that's been building up in the system, that it that it really will change everything. But you know, before you get to that, you, you have to kind of understand the backstory to it. Now, we've had inflationary scares before um, over the last, you know, well, let's just go back 20 years. We've had we've had a few scares of inflation, and each time the Fed held their kind of nerve and said, yeah, yeah, we think it's transitory. They didn't use that word at the time. Um, and each time, for one reason or another, they were, they were proven right. Um, they've stuck with their guns again this time, interestingly, until this past week when Jay Powell said it was time to retire the word transitory from because talks about inflation, which I found fascinating, frankly. Um, but... Look, I think people think about this as, as a switch, that we are about to flip a switch from inflation to deflation, and then, okay, now we have an inflationary world to trade. And that's going to be correct for a period of time. But if you, if you, if you zoom right the way out, you realize that, that progress, technology, demographics, all these things, these big picture items are massively deflationary. And that's really what, what's been driving everything for the last 40 years. Um, and did for most of the preceding 40 years before that. What we saw, though, in the 60s and 70s was this super spike in, in inflation. Um, and it was a spike. And if you look at various charts, you will see that the inflationary period was the anomaly. The trend is very clear. It's a very deflationary trend. It's a deflationary trend. You can see that if you look at bond markets. You can see it if you look at inflation. You can see it in so many ways. So that the trend is definitely deflationary. Um, and we will get back to that. We will get back to deflation once this inflationary period is out of the way. The danger is the amount of damage that this inflationary period could do to your portfolio might be such that it could, depending on your age, take the rest of your life to recover to the point where you are now. And that's what people really need to be aware of. Um, and so, you know, you go back to the, the, the 60s, 70s, we had 50, close to close to 20 years of inflationary pressure. It, it, everybody thinks about the 70s as the inflationary period. Everyone looks at the blow off at the end of the 70s before Volcker um, raised rates into the you know, double digits, high teens, to, uh, to quell that. Um, but really, we had inflationary pressure for the best part of 18 years, going back to the, to the mid to late 60s. And it's a very insidious thing, inflation. And so when we've had these periods of nascent inflation over the last 20 years, for example, the one missing component to that has been um, a, a, a real entrenching of expectations and B, wage increases. Now, there are great charts floating around. You'll find them all over the place that show uh, GDP versus average wage growth. And you can see that in 1971, a date which is familiar to you, me, and anyone who, uh, who pays attention to both history or, or precious metals, you'll see that as of 1971, the wages chart in real terms just kept going sideways. It's, there haven't been any real wage increases for the you know, best part of 50 years. 
Um, and that's important because, uh, you know, if you, if you look at what happened shortly after that conversation we had in New Orleans, I mean, it seems a lifetime ago. I can't believe it, it was just the end of 2019 when three of us no. had a chat. Um, you know, this pandemic has changed so many things. It, it, it's changed things in, the, in terms of um, supply chain dynamics, uh, which is obviously inflationary. Um, but I think the most important thing, this is something that our mutual friend Pippa Malmgren pointed out to me in one of my long conversations with her, is the mindset here is, is changed because of COVID. And, and it's changed in a very important way in that a year ago, people were unable for any price to buy things like toilet roll or cleaning products or certain items of food. You know, it, it, there wasn't a price you could pay to get bread in some supermarkets because they were empty. And so with that so fresh in people's minds, the idea of paying 5% or 10% more for a loaf of bread, they don't think about it in terms of, I don't want to pay 5% more. In the back of their mind, there's that voice saying, you know, a year ago, you could have offered double the price and you wouldn't be able to get any. Right. They're just and saying, so, I need some bread. <laughs> I need some bread. And so, so that mind shift is important because... If you look at, you've talked about the CPI, but if you look at the PPI numbers, if you look at um, PPI numbers in America, but particularly in Europe, where we're seeing, you know, input cost inflation running in the mid to high 20%. They're exploding, right? right? They're exploding. And the problem comes, how do you pass those cost increases on to your customers? So if you're a company and you've got 30% input cost increases, what do you do? You sit around the table, you go, well, look, you know, if you're, if you're a good global citizen, you say, you know, guys, we've done pretty well for the last 20, 30 years. Our margins have been expanding. Maybe we should, maybe we should eat this for the good of uh, our customers and we'll just eat this in our margins. Sure, we so that's 1% that of the companies out there. <laughs> well, I mean, not even, right? Because they're all got, they've got to do their best by the shareholders. The privately owned companies might do that because um, they have that ability. But if you are a listed company, you're there, your job is your shareholders. So we can pretty much rule that out as a response to it. So you start to try and think about how you pass the costs on. Now, they may eat the costs for a while um, in the hope that those, those input costs fall again. But if you look at any of the charts, they're not falling. They, they, they're gaining traction, they're gaining speed, gaining momentum to the upside. So you need to try and pass as much of those costs on as you can. You're going to struggle to pass 20% costs on, but maybe you can pass 10% on uh, and protect some of your margins. Well, guess what? The COVID has given you a public, A, willing to perhaps bear higher costs because they do have that recent memory. And B, the second point I want to make, and, and, and this is, again, just as important, if not more so perhaps, is that we are seeing wage price inflation. Uh, and that's important because, as I say, it's gone sideways for half a century. People deserve a need to get higher wages in order to keep up with the cost of living. But um, while goods price inflation is a pretty bi-directional thing you know if, if customers aren't paying high prices prices can get lowered but once you've given someone a pay rise good luck taking it back because what circumstances have changed that's not going to happen and we've started to see um some pretty aggressive negotiating texts I, I had a, a guest on my podcast julian brigden recently who, who we had a fantastic conversation he, and we were talking about the situation at john deere which was recently resolved and here was a company who were offered a workforce who were on strike and we're being offered the kind of deal that workers all over America would have settled for a year or so ago, you know, 5% increase here and a 3% increase there, that would have been seized. 
but no. And their and their response was, you know, management have been making out like bandits for years now with stock options, and we want out. Um, and that mindset is really being is being forced upon the negotiators because these prices keep going up and people need to be paid more. So you've got this perfect storm on the inflationary side where you've got supply chain disruptions. You've got massive increase in the money supply last year. You've got wage increases and you've got uh, consumers who are willing to bear price increases while at the same time negotiating for higher wages. I mean, this is, you couldn't ask for a better inflationary environment, really, you couldn't. Um, all you really need is some kind of disruption to the oil supply. And, that, and there you go. That's the, that's the kind of missing candle off the cake. So um, that's kind of where we are. And it's a, it's a very real problem because every portfolio in the world that's done well over the last 40, 50 years has necessarily been set up for a, essentially a deflationary environment. You know, it's not crazy deflation, but it's low inflation. Um, it's ever decreasing bond rates. And it's worked really, really well. So when you ask what does it do and how's it changing, it changes everything, which is why I made that reference to the bizarro world earlier on. Everything is going to be back to front. You know, if you if you have a portfolio set up for deflation and inflation shows up, you've got a lot of leverage, uh, which has been great in a deflation environment. You get a lot of leverage in an inflation environment, it's going to be a huge problem for you. You have um, a huge bond portfolio because bond prices have been going up. That ain't going to work out so well for you. And even though you'll be able to read plenty of people that will tell you that um, uh, inflation is good for stocks, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, it's not just a blanket, buy equities and you'll do okay. You've got to pay attention to real terms. So yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And, and this inflationary problem is not going away. Now, now the, the, the thing that... Um, I'm fascinated by, and I genuinely am fascinated by this, is the, is the intellectual firepower on both sides of this debate. Um, you know, there are people that I have supreme respect for on the inflationary side, and there are people who I hold in equally high regard. Um, uh, the two names that come to mind are Dave Rosenberg and Lacey Hunt, right. who believe that deflation is going to win. And, and I agree with them in the long term. But to get from here to where deflation takes over again, if you don't adjust your portfolio accordingly, you could be wiped out. And so it's 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 while it's okay to look through and say, well, long term, I think deflation is going to win. Yes, but if you don't play defense while inflation has the upper hand, it could be catastrophic to your portfolio. All right, um, and Grant, this is why I'm so excited if you were able to come on today because this is exactly the type of conversation that um, I created wealthy on to have because the viewers here are trying to find out. All right, I, I kind of get the arc that Grant's talking about here. How do I prevent from getting wiped out along the way as that arc transpires? Um, so we'll get to your thoughts on specific asset classes in, in a little bit here in the discussion, but I want to tug on a few threads that you brought up here. Um, so it sounds like you're saying, um, look, we're going to we, we kind of have this long secular deflationary trend that's going to continue, but we're entering into a period right now where the dominant uh, force we're all going to fear feel is this rising inflation, probably to be measured in years, uh, and that's going to change the game as we've you know become accustomed to over the past couple of decades. Um, uh, I'm going to ask one question with a second one that maybe you can answer in, 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 when you give your answer here, which is, um, do you think it's really going to be more sort of stagflation where we're going to have disappointing economic growth? 
at the same time that 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 inflation is rising. So we're really talking about being worried about a stagflationary environment. And then um, kind of a super question on top of that is, um, you know, we've had folks on this program in the past that, that have had data that that validates what you said earlier, which is um, inflationary regimes actually don't tend to be great for stocks, or at least not at the beginning. Um, they get the stock market usually gets hit, and that's largely because um, you have all these input, you know, other cost structures going up, right? They're, and you just talked about, you know, their cost of inputs are going up, wages are going up, et cetera. So that squeezes profit margins. Um, so uh, it sounds like you're, you're saying kind of at a high level, you could see both the stock market going down and the bond market going down at the same time. Is that accurate? Look, yeah, of course that's possible. I mean, people seem to think that they, I mean, they've been fine for them both to go up in one direction, but if you say they could both go in the same direction the other way, people think you're uh, you're chicken little. You know, it's 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 kind of crazy. But yeah, of course. I mean, if you if you if you just get a reconnection to economic reality, then you look at the valuations that a lot of these stocks are on. You only need compression of those. That's all you need, and the market could harp. You know, if if if, if equities get valued on a more reasonable. Um, uh, uh, earnings ratio, then market get cut in half quite happily. Um, that wouldn't that wouldn't be a huge shock, I think, to anyone that pays attention to those metrics. And um, anyone that's talked about that is, you know, people have just kind of ignored it for a while, and they've, they've been right to. This is, I think, it's important to understand this. They've been they've been right to. But let, let's talk about why they've been right to ignore them. It's not because it hasn't it doesn't matter. It's because it hasn't mattered. And they're two very, very different things, right? The fact that, uh, you know, price to sales uh, are insane valuations, the kind of valuations that Scott McNeely very famously made a great quote about um, asking uh, analysts if what they were thinking back in after the end of the dot-com bubble. There are hundreds of stocks with those kind of crazy valuations out there right now. It hasn't mattered, um, but it does matter. And so as long as people are willing to not care about that stuff, fine, it, it, the, the price will keep going up. But it, it really does rely on that, that greater fool theory. If, if you don't care about the valuations of your equities, you really are hoping that the world continues to not care about it. Because at some point, you have to be able to measure the value of something that you own. And generally, people tend to do that when markets turn. They look at their holdings and they go, okay, what's this really worth? Because do I keep it or do I chuck it out now because the markets are turned? And if you go through your portfolio uh, at this level, um, unless, unless you're along with junior mining stocks, which look incredibly cheap on traditional metrics, but if you look at anything that's performed over the last three or four years and you go through the mental exercise saying, okay, let's say the markets are topping out and I, today, as I sit here, am more worried about the markets going down from here. Let's forget what I'm doing, but let's, let's do that exercise. Let's look at my portfolio. In a world where I'm worried about markets falling rather than expecting them to go up, all these things I own, how do I value them? And I think if you do that exercise, you'll find there are an awful lot of things and an awful lot of people's portfolios. But if you were concerned about markets going down, you would have a heart attack and think, why the hell am I holding this? But it's a really difficult thing. It's a really difficult exercise for people to do because obviously 
we're all optimistic by nature. You, you kind of hope the status quo continues. You hope things keep going up. You have FOMO. You, you're worried that they will go up and you'll sell too early. And, you know, it, it, all these things are part of human nature. But at some point, you have to have the discipline to step away from what you would like to happen and worry about what could happen and how it might affect you. And that, I, I think, is, is where we are now, simply because this inflation, the switch to inflationary environment, really forces those kind of thought exercises on, on people that have, have investment portfolios. Um, so just to add one other element to what you just talked about there, Grant, um, you know, you can't blame the investors that are long, that have been long this market because it has worked out for them. No, but also all they've been doing is been responding to the set of incentives that the central banks have been laying out there for them, right? Which has been, if, if, you know, if you believe the central banks have had your back, you have made a ton of money over the past decade. And if you have tried to go with logic in terms of, okay, well, we're at this really high level of overvaluations, um, maybe I need to get out of the market, either sit on the sidelines, or maybe I need to take a short position um, I mean, if, if you've gone short this market at any time, basically, in the past decade, you've just been slaughtered, right? So that the, the central banks have basically trained this entire cohort of living investors uh, that it only pays to be along the market. And, and it really hurts to either not be in the game or to actually fight what the feds are doing, which, I, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, it just seems like it increases the potential damage because you've shoved everybody out on the risk curve in a place where they don't belong, such that if the game does change in the way that you believe it's going to, you know, you're going to kind of get maximum damage of the investor population because you've crammed everybody out into the riskiest parts of the market. Um, so uh, I guess, first off, you know, thoughts on the central banks and, and how culpable you feel they are to the position that we, we find ourselves in today. Uh, well, look, uh, I think it's, uh, it's impossible to exonerate them for this, unfortunately. Uh, I think history will not be kind to them. Uh, when this all plays out, again, like Scott McNeely, uh, there are going to be plenty of people saying, what were they thinking? And it's going to be very, very tough to answer that because at the end of the day, you know, they have mandates um, and what they've been doing doesn't really feel necessary given the mandates they've had. You know, this $120 billion of, of bond buying every month, every month given what's yeah. going on, does not feel like that is designed to justify their mandates of, of you know, stable prices and low, un, uh, low unemployment. Just doesn't. Um, I understand why they did what they did at, at, in the teeth of 2008. Um, I would even say they did the right thing back then. But uh, there have been plenty of moments in between then and now where they had a chance to walk back what they did, walk back the extreme policy measures they put in place. And yes, it would have meant some pain in the markets, but that's part of how the whole thing used to work, right? There, there was pain. Uh, you know, you pick any natural market cycle. Year, yeah, pick any 25-year market cycle going back, you know, pre I guess 2008, and you will find periods of pain in there. And investors lose money and businesses go bankrupt. It used to be called capitalism. And that, unfortunately, the, 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 the size of the problem now has become so big. Uh, and there are so many companies, people, whole industries 
who are utterly dependent upon interest rates staying low and monetary accommodation, that the Fed has created this enormous problem for themselves in that if they do withdraw accommodation, if they do attempt to normalize interest rates, really none of this works anymore, right? It doesn't work at 4% interest rates, which somewhere between four and five and a half percent is kind of the average interest rate we've seen over the last 30 years. Um, it doesn't work there anymore. It doesn't work at 3% interest rates. You know, there are so many zombie companies in the, in the, in the US stock markets that can't meet their obligations out of cash flow and need to roll their debt over. It's absolutely remarkable. It's you know roughly one in five, I think. If I may have that number slightly wrong, but it's roughly one in five of the SP 500 can't meet its ongoing obligations out of cash flow and needs to be able to roll over its debt. And all of this is a function of rates being low for such a long time and money essentially being free. Private equity, that business doesn't work at, at three, four percent interest rates. Um, all the all the ancillary industries that private equity has gone into. You know, I, I do a sports car, uh, podcast with some friends of mine, and we've had so many conversations over the last year about the amount of private equity money going into sport, um, whether it be sports franchises, whether it be um, you know sport tech, all of which is predicated on well, listen, money's so cheap, we need to borrow some. Where can we go? Well, there's some great upside in in the sports business, and there is. But take a look at those numbers again with four or five percent rates, and it doesn't work. So none of it does. You know, the government doesn't work at five percent rates because they can't afford to pay back their interest costs. You know, so what's happened is the Fed have created this situation because the longer they've kept this going, and I say the Fed as a as a, as a blanket term for all the central banks because they're all as culpable as each other. The longer this has gone on, the more people have become reliant upon this status quo to continue. And it isn't a status quo that can continue. You know, money is not a free good. It just isn't. And it never has been. It requires inputs uh, in order to, to be paid a wage. And so I think the central banks, when all is said and done, are going to be massively accountable for what happens. You know, they've been, they've been largely accountable for the markets going up. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure they're clapping themselves on the back for what a great job they've done of stewarding the world through these crises. But when this turns around and, uh, and this whole thing blows up, then I suspect the blame is going to get laid where it's due. And that's why inflation is so important, because inflation was always the one thing that was going to force their hand to take away low interest rates, was going to force them to hike. Uh, force them to combat um, inflation because that is one of their mandates, right? Finally, we got to a point where they were supposed to do their job and what their job entails is doing the one thing that is going to upset everything they've built around themselves over the last 20 years. So it's going to be interesting and, and I suspect painful to watch, but um, how culpable are they? Extremely. All right. So let's really dig into this then. So you've said that... Um, uh, you know, the system that the Fed has basically helped engineer here cannot withstand higher interest rates. But now the inflation monster has escaped. And really, the only tool the Fed and the other central banks have to tame it is higher interest rates. Oh, so no, no, that, Adam, that's the problem. That's the problem. Uh, that's the simple tool. But, um, you know, we, we, 
We've been through periods like this before, and uh, Bill Fleckenstein and I had a great conversation with Russell Napier about this back in, um, geez, I think, I think towards the end of uh, late, late last year, uh, when he was calling for exactly what's happening now. He was calling for 5% inflation. And we talked about what happened before when um, we saw these, these periods of, of capped yield curves. And there are plenty of people out there arguing, and, and Russell referenced the deficit met by Stephanie uh, Kelton. Um, talking about how, you know, it's, it's done, they kept rates before and, and it worked, so we can do it again. And, and Russell pointed out, you know, we had, along with cap yield curves, we had capital controls and credit controls, and we had all kinds of things that you really don't want to put in place. And once the cap was removed, take a look at the chart. I mean, once these things were free, they went, the rates went screaming through the roof. So what, what the problem is, is that you're right, raising rates is the only real tool they have in their arsenal. But once push comes to shove, wait for the emergency tools that they ask for and are given, because if they aren't given them, there will just be too much pain. I mean, people are not going to stand for it. And so is it mandated treasury holdings in portfolios, whether it be pension fund portfolios or individual portfolios? Is it capping the yield curve? Is it is it trashing the currency to continue to print money to, to buy an unlimited amount of sovereign debt? All of these things, is it currency controls? Is it capital controls? Is it credit controls? The answer to all of the above is probably. Now, in what order and in what combination, it's hard to tell. But they have a very intractable problem here that is a very dangerous problem. It's not like they can just roll the dice here because things could get out of control very, very quickly. And they won't want that. So they want to keep control of this. And that will require doing things that today, sitting here, seem impossible but when faced with a situation where they're necessary if you think they're going to sit back and go well we can't we can't it wouldn't be right for us to mandate treasury minimum treasury holdings in a pension portfolio that wouldn't be right and someone taps on the show and says well if you don't then rates are going to be double digits and every pension fund is going to be massively underwater anyway what do you want to do what do you think they're going to do they're going to do they're going to take the road that minimizes the pain as they always have done. So people need to, to be prepared for this. People need to look back at the 60s, look back at the post-war period and understand what happened, understand the measures that were used um, and have a plan for if those measures get used again. Wow, all right, fascinating. So um, can you try just to make that a little bit more um, personally relevant to, to viewers that are watching this. So well, um, yeah, absolutely. Look, I tell you, let, let, let's do it this way. Just, just what does that uh, look and feel like for the if, average person? You, well, let's just look at, um, let's look at two countries, Japan and Australia. Japan, uh, the central bank basically capped the yield curve. They said that the 10 year rate was effectively going to be zero and they would basically stand there and buy every bond. And so you have this bizarre situation where the Japanese 10-year JGB, there are days when it literally does not trade. Now, you know, that, that was at one point the world's second biggest economy. It's most liquid bond doesn't trade because the government is there and they've committed to buying an indefinite amount. And you can see the Bank of Japan balance sheet. Uh, they've committed to buying ETFs. They own, you know, they're a top 10 holder in every company on the Nikkei 225. It's bizarre. But Japan is, has become a very domestic market. So them standing in the way of a 10-year um, offer and just soaking them up has not really caused that much of a problem because such a vast amount of the Japanese debt is owned domestically. It's very, very 
few bonds are held overseas. In fact, Russell Clark uh, came on the, the podcast with Fleck and I and, and talked us through how difficult it had been for him to buy Japanese government bonds. It's a very complicated process for, for, for an overseas investor. So there's the one side. You've got a cap yield curve, and it really doesn't matter. The, the JGB has been trading around zero for a long time. People have kind of given up testing the Bank of Japan because what's the point? It's gone quiet. Now, Australia did the same thing. Australia capped the two-year. Uh, I think it was 15 basis points, if I remember correctly, somewhere around there. And they effectively said, we are going to peg the two-year bond at 15 basis points. And they did. And they were in there buying paper. And then a couple of months ago, they decided they couldn't do that anymore. It was just getting too tough. So they quietly abandoned the peg. And what happened? Rates went and then from 15 rates, basis points. Rates exploded, yeah. <laughs> it went from 15 basis points to 75 basis points in a matter of days. So think about what that did to anyone that had loaded their portfolio up with Aussie two years, thinking, well, this is great. I'm, 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 it's a safe bet. I'm not going to lose any money. Uh, the Aussie government's got my back. Boom. Look at the money you lost. So th these things happen. There are, there are two different outcomes. Either way, the Japanese one has gone along just fine and it's, it's worked and no one's been hurt. The Aussie one's done exactly the same thing, but they've then reached that moment of criticality when the, the central bank can no longer support the program they put in place and boom, everybody gets carried out. Now, the last time that really happened, and people forget this, was 1992 when George Soros famously forced the, the British pound out of the exchange rate mechanism. You know, this was, this was a single investor basically punching the British central bank square in the face um, and them going down for an eight count. And, and, and it worked. So since then, banks, central banks have, have kind of had this feeling of omnipotence about them, one they've carefully cultivated by stepping in, you know, the hubris of Mario Draghi, we'll do whatever it takes and trust me, it will be enough. The hubris in that statement, particularly as, you know, Tim Geithner revealed later on that he basically scrawled that on a napkin before he went on stage. That wasn't some great program they'd had in place. He went out there with his chest puffed out and went, you know what? Test me, I dare you. I'm bigger than all of you. Okay, fine. You are for a while, just as the Bank of England were for a while, just as the, the RBA in Australia were for a while. But ultimately, markets are bigger than central banks. And we've kind of forgotten that and got away from it because it's been such a long time since the markets have, uh, have either been big enough or brave enough to challenge central banks. But the set of problems that central banks are facing right now, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, it's been simple. Um, let's just keep printing money and everything's fine. Well, now they've got cross currents. Now they've got we need to keep printing money and buying bonds to keep uh, these markets afloat and liquid. But we've come in the other way. We've now got inflationary headwinds, which we are mandated to tackle. So there is a time approaching where I suspect markets, um, hedge funds, uh, investors of all sides will be in a position where they might think about testing these governments again. And whether it be a, a test on a, on a capped yield curve or not, we won't know. Um, but for investors, it's very, very important to, to shake yourself free of this notion that central bankers always will get what they want. And whatever they say is how things will play out. It's, been, it's worked that way for the last 20 years because it's been in everybody's best interests to, to go along with them. 
if they say we're going to lower rates, they were great. We're going to borrow a lot of money. This is great. They've got our backs. No one's fighting the central banks, but they're giving away money to everybody. When the central banks start raising rates on people and forcing you to hold your money in certain instruments, there's going to be people fighting them. And, um, and I suspect the day is going to come when they are going to end up with the requisite amount of egg all over their faces. All right. So um, that's just so fascinating, Grant. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is, is um, look, we're going to be exiting a regime where things have been largely predictable and stable and easy for a lot of investors, right? Just go with the central banks, go with the flow. You're going to get, you're going to get wealthy. Uh, we're now going to enter a point potentially where the central banks themselves start changing the rules of the game, um, basically doing everything they can do, but raise rates, right? Because we talked about that raising rates is the you know, the last most desperate act that, that, that they don't want to take if they don't have to. Ironically, yeah. Ironically, yeah. Um, of course, it's the thing that needs to happen to, to bring the system to a healthier baseline. Of course, there's going to be a lot of destruction as that goes on, but it's, it's kind of that healthy destruction that you need to wipe out in a bus cycle. But anyways, um, so the central banks are going to start changing the rules of the game. <clears throat> It's going to make uh, you know a lot of investors unhappy. Some of them might start challenging them. We might see the return of bond vigilantes, things like that that we haven't seen for decades. Um, but it sounds like you think that likelihood is not bad that the central banks, um, that markets will win out in the end um, and that central banks may have to capitulate and, and either raise rates or, or frankly, the market just takes rates out of the, the central bank's hands going forward. So um, we're looking at a period of, of greater volatility, greater uncertainty, probably um, a high potential of losses, meaning you know both equities and and uh, and bonds uh, could see some very big corrections in this type of environment. Um, <clears throat> so I want to get on in a second about you know what people could could do today in preparation for that. But did I summarize that relatively accurately? Yeah, and if, and if you listen to what you said, you just described bizarro world. You described the upside down of everything we've seen, right? There's a, there's a high propensity for losses, rising interest rates, you know, central bankers not, not having it all their own way, you know, equity markets fall. It, it's the opposite of everything that we've come to rely on, really, in these last, uh, in these last several decades. And, and that's why I think it's just so important for people to, to think this through and have a plan and go through that exercise. You know, look at your portfolio. If... The direction of markets was down and buying the dip was not the thing to do but sell the rallies now take a look at what you own should you own it in that environment is it is it going to perform okay for you um and the chances are if you've been buying the momentum driven stuff that's done so well in the last particular last sort of three or four years as we've had this kind of blow off top i would i would caution you very strongly that those are the first things that are going to get taken out to the woodshed and look we're already seeing it we're already seeing it in some of these high-flying Tech stocks are already seeing it. I mean, take a look at Arc, take a look at Tesla, take a look at a lot of these, you know, high Zoom, Peloton, all these things that everyone was saying, oh yeah, can't lose. Uh, they're very quietly been cut in half, some of them, you know? So um, we're, we're at that point. We're at that point where it's been fine to be passive. And by that, I don't mean it's been fine to just throw your money in passive investing. I mean, it's it's been fine for you as a steward of your own capital, which we all are ultimately. Uh, we may have our money with investment managers, we may have it in funds, ETS, whatever, but ultimately, at some point, it's down to us to take the responsibility to either take the money away from that manager or move it out of that passive fund or, or something, right? We can't blame anybody. Um, we are all stewards of our own capital. And so as a steward of our own capital, ultimately, 
it's incumbent upon us to do these exercises. It's incumbent upon us to go, you know, I've done really well these last five years. Has anything changed that might mean that I don't do as well in the next five years? And, and we've already spent 45 minutes talking about a huge, huge red flag that suggests that the next five years are going to be nothing like the last five years. And if that's the case, then your portfolio should look nothing like it has the last five years. All right, great. Well, let's now dive into the particulars of this. I got a whole bunch of questions here. Um, let's try to bang through as many as we can, sort of in a bit of a lightning round. But if you need to expound on any one of them, just go sure. for it. Um, <clears throat> first off, there have been a lot of people over the past bunch of years, as that inflation versus deflation debate has been raging, who have said, um, hey, when, when it looks like inflation is going to really start taking off, um, that's a great time to lever up. Um, because basically, you know, you have the inflation that's that's you know eating down the 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 cost of the debt for you, right? Are we nearing that the time where that might make sense? You know, in a deflationary world, being over leveraged will kill you, right? Yeah. So if we think inflation is going to start taking off, you know, for the next couple of years, is this a wise time to potentially buy whatever assets we think are good using debt that could be you know eroded away by the inflation? You know, look, it's funny that the implication from that statement is that we are in a time that's under levered, right? which is anything. But, yeah, you know, which is so funny. But look, the important thing is if you're going to use leverage, make sure you're buying assets that produce an income, right? Buy assets with leverage that will pay off your interest payments. Because, you know, that's the problem. People have been buying, people have been borrowing to buy trophy assets that they figure will sell at higher prices. And you know what? It's worked. <coughs> Excuse me. If you've levered up, to buy a Van Gogh 10 years ago. There's no income from a Van Gogh, but guess what? You know what? You could have used your leverage and made an absolute killing selling it to someone else who got rich from cryptocurrencies or whatever. It would have done really, really well. But what we're going into now is a point where the people who own those Van Goghs and, and paid top, top, top dollar for them might be looking around having a few margin calls in place. Think, you know what? I'll just sell the Van Gogh. Well, if you want to lever up and buy it now, um, when it's not an income producing asset, you might have a much harder time about it. So it's fine to use leverage. And yes, in an inflationary environment, there is a sensible tool to use. But again, you know, we've everything's been dumbed down and simplified. People talk about leverage as if it's a thing. It's not. A leverage is a decision about an asset and about a certain situation. It's not a thing. You're in a long leverage, right? Um, but people will tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm leveraged long. Well, what? What do you leverage long? If you leverage long the stock market, you might have an issue. If you leverage long student housing, you might be okay. So, again, people need to get away. This, 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 this move towards passive from active is also a move towards the abdication of responsibility. And, and let, let, let somebody else handle it. It's, it's complicated. Let someone else handle it. And that works great until times like this. And I just cannot stress this point enough. We are all stewards of our own capital, ultimately. And the decisions we have to make may not be about which stocks to buy, which bonds to sell. It might be about which manager you want your money with. And that's a very, very important decision. And it isn't a decision you make for the rest of your life. You make that decision and you should be checking it constantly because I guarantee you, that 99.9% .9 of the managers who do really well in a deflationary environment are going to really struggle in an inflationary environment. So for you to leave your capital with them, if the entire uh, world around them has changed 180 degrees, is an abdication of responsibility. So yes, 
people want simple answers. Yes, leverage is a useful tool in times of inflation, but it isn't that simple and it never is. It's about how much leverage you have. It's about what you use it for. Um, so to get out of this idea that investing has become simple, it has, it has become simple, but it isn't. As, as people in Robinhood who have got sucked into all these gamification tools and how much fun it is to trade and invest and buy stonks and find out the hard way that it's not that simple, it's not going to be that simple for, for anybody going forward. So please, please understand that. Um, have an assessment and, and try and come up with a plan of how to deal with it because it could make the difference between, um, between you know, getting out of this, taking your chips off the table and, and profiting from the last 20 years, or it could end, end up being wiped out. And, and you know, that's going to happen to a lot of people in that. And it, I hate to see it, but it will happen because people have gotten used to abdicating responsibility. This interview with Grant continues over in part two, which will be released tomorrow once we're done editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as the little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to click the like button too while you're at it. Also, Grant has kindly allowed us to share his recent report on the great inflation-deflation debate, which you can access right now for free at Wealthion.com Grant. It goes deeper into his forecast, and it brings in the perspectives of great minds on this topic, like Russell Napier and Lacey Hunt. And given Grant's very strong recommendation to find a good guide to help you develop an active investing plan for the inflationary era ahead, if you'd appreciate a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio, keeping in mind the risks that Grant has highlighted here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our video interview with Grant Williams. Thank you.